You just mentioned where I was going to tandem to, the 55s. They're actually... Welcome to the Finger Space Podcast, a weekly show where we will dive deep into the history, stories, and controversies surrounding the fingerboarding community. Welcome to the Finger Space Podcast. I'm your host, Nostalgia FB, and we are excited to be chatting with Brandon of Lakewood FB. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button on your streaming platform of choice. This show is sponsored by Fingerspace Co., which provides fingerboarding gear for writers of all skill levels and budgets. Brandon, thank you very much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Of course. Uh, it's just a lazy day, so it's off to an easy start. Yeah, yeah, I love, love the lazy Mondays. Man, so the first question we like to ask everybody that comes onto the show is, how did you hear about and get into fingerboarding? Now, that's a question that you have to figure out if you want to constitute fingerboarding as tactics or fingerboarding as in wooden fingerboards, because those are two very different stories. Because tactics is fingerboarding. You can't really remove it. But when it comes to those two stories, there's completely different ways that I got into each of those. So which one would you like to hear about? Because I can tell about one or the other. Let's hear about both, but tell whichever came first. Okay. So that's actually a lot easier to start with the beginning and then work from there because TechDex was where I started. And it's a kind of long story, but I will condense it. Back when I was a kid, and just a side note, I had a family situation going on. My parents were going through a divorce. I was at my dad's parents' house, and my one uncle had like some original 1999 tech decks that he had from when he was a kid. And us, all the kids and my cousins and whatnot, were playing with them. But some of us got the bright idea, not me, but some of us got the bright idea to try and like stand on them and skate around. So of course our grandma was like, no, you can't do that, and took them away. So here I was like, oh, but I was having fun with the little skateboard. So when my dad picked us up, I was like, yo, can we go to Toys R Us? I want to buy a tech deck. And he's like, why do you want to buy a tech deck? I'm like, because it was fun and your brother had one. He's like, okay. So he took us to Toys R Us back in like 2007 and we bought two tech decks, one for myself and one for my younger brother who fingerboards as well. That's what got me into tech decks, and I just used entirely those for about a solid year. And for about a half a year, didn't know about anything else. On that note, I'll segue into the wooden fingerboards, because of course that was the second question. Back in like 2008 was around when I kind of picked up wooden fingerboards. And it's so dumb, but a lot of people kind of have the same experience. I was on YouTube one day, and I was like, skateboards are made of wood, but a tech deck's made of plastic. And I typed in wooden tech deck. And the next thing I knew, I started finding like all sorts of really, really old fingerboard videos, but specifically Mike Schneider's Berlinwood Old Mold review is like one of the first videos I found. And I remember he was showing the old Berlinwood Old Molds. And like at the end of the video, he's like, this board's so good. You want this board. You want this board in your hands. Like if you go find that old video, he has like this whole like uh, silly like speech he says at the end. And ever since that point, I was like, I do want a wooden fingerboard. I don't know how I'm going to get one, but I want one. <laughs> So how did you end up getting your hands on one from when you got this initial bug and you discovered this whole new world? So that's a good question there because I got that video instilled in me and I didn't get a wooden fingerboard right away. I was, I think, 11 or 12 at the time. So cash was not a super easy thing for me to like get my hands on per se. I didn't have like a allowance. So I was like, OK, so what am I going to do with this? One way or another, I remember doing some like yard work or something like that to get some cash together. And I ended up buying a board off of a company back in the day called Radtastic. That was run by a girl named Allison Ta. I remember buying that board, waiting a couple days in the mail back in the day that it came in, and then getting it and being like, wow, this board is so good. I put grip tape and like tech deck trucks and wheels on it. And I remember riding it around and being like, this is so different than a tech deck. 
That eventually led into seeing videos about making fingerboards. And back in the day, especially, veneer was not something I was able to get my hands on easily either. But I could go to craft stores and I could buy aircraft plywood. And my dad bought some of that for me. And this is a tangent, but this is like the one thing I like to talk about from this era. Is that I remember looking at this board and I wish I had it to visually show you at the very second, but it's somewhere else tucked away. But the quality screams 2008. That's all I can say out loud. And I remember looking at my dad and being like, I can't make a board this good. And he's like, Brandon, I know you can make a board this quality, if not better. And I'm like, no, it's never going to happen. And uh, yeah, here I am now. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. That's, that's little, man, yeah. that's good. That's such an organic start. So, okay, so as you mentioned that it screams 2008. Lakewood started in 2009. Yes, that is correct. So it wasn't too long after, right? Yes, and the reason why I like to put the EST 2009. So what was that initial that initial process to getting started? So yeah, that's that's a good question. Because in 2008, I did a bunch of aircraft boards. I was pressing them between tech decks. I wasn't making it like a business yet. I was just making them for me because I was tired of... Uh, yeah. I didn't want to keep spending money on something that I was like, oh, this is cool. I'll use it for a couple of months and then put away. Because not everyone does that with their fingerboard stuff. I know people that go to Mike's house that like ride a fingerboard for like two and a half, three years straight. And that's super cool. They can do that. But for me, I've always been like, a, oh, I'm going to use it for a while. But then I want to try something different on the bottom of my board. So back in the day, like I said, I started making them just from whatever I could make them from. And then eventually my dad was like, hey, do you want to drive an hour out to a woodcraft? Do you want to buy actual veneer? I'm like, yes, I do. That's not a question. So we went out and got that. And that was in 2009. So at that point, I looked up proper how to make a Bondo mold. And there were a couple of videos out there on YouTube. I made one and I still have that one. It's not very good, but I still have it. And that's when I made the decision. I'm like, you know what? Instead of just making them for me, I want to actually make them proper. So I established the name Lakewood. And I'm not going to ramble too much about the beginning part in the terms of how the name came to be. But that's another one of those fun little stories I do like to mention. Because initially, Lakewood was actually going to be named Driftwood. And I almost went with Driftwood because I live right on the uh, the Great Lakes. I live on Lake Erie. And Driftwood something we find a lot when you go on the beachfront. But something about the name didn't quite click for me. So I was sitting there and debating it back and forth. And again, at this time, I was like 12 or 13. So I was still a kid. And I went to my mom and I'm like, should I name it Driftwood or something else? She told me I should name it Lakewood because I live on the lake and you find wood on the beach. So, And I was like, you know what? I'm not against that name, so sure, why don't we go with that instead? Because something about Driftwood at the time just didn't click for me. I don't know what it was, but I was like, eh. So in the end, I went with Lakewood, only to now for years be asked if I live in Lakewood, insert state here. And I don't live in Lakewood, insert state here. I didn't know there were cities named Lakewood. I don't know why I never thought of that as a kid, but I didn't. So that is now my eternal uh, curse to live with. But regardless, I did eventually come back around and use the, uh, the Driftwood term. I use them with these uh, ramps I make, actually. So I did eventually come back around and use that original name. I just didn't at the time when I started. So that's the story behind what Lakewood's name came from. No, it's nice. That's a really cool story. Now, I want to ask you because you're one of the most OG people that we've talked to that have been around for a while and have kind of seen the progression of the entire fingerboard community in all of its aspects. You mentioned making Bondo molds, which was a method that a lot of people that got into deck making originally used and watching those videos. Are there any older fingerboard YouTube that stand out to you that maybe nobody knows of anymore but should definitely go check out brandon roberts brandon roberts is a name that strikes me memory wise because i'm pretty sure his video is no longer there 
However, he was like one of the first people that made the square Bondo method. And again, I wish I kind of had grabbed it to visually show you it because I have a couple examples that I've made even recently as duplicates of my actual metal molds. But when Bondo molds were made back in the day, I can actually kind of show the visualization with a board here. It would be a tech deck, not an actual wooden board, but you would take like a cereal box cardboard and tape around the sides. Make sure you put like cellophane tape on top of the board. And in that rounded shape, you would pour the Bondo in so that the Bondo would get the curvature of the board. Now that was cool if you were just doing boards for yourself or if you were specifically doing one size of board. But the second that your tech deck was 26 millimeters and you wanted to make a 28, a 30 millimeter board, your mold wasn't wide enough to make the board. So you would get indents on the board and it wouldn't look good. So Brandon Roberts, as far as I remember, my memory could be failing me, but I'm pretty sure it was him was one of the first people that like really gave out the concept about doing a square mold instead of the rounded mold. And how a square mold was made is that you would kind of either cut a piece of wood that had a flat, a kick, and a kick on one half, and then you would take that piece of Bondo and you would sand in the concave, or you would cut like a blank square of aluminum and use either your hands or pliers, depending on how thick the aluminum was, bend the board to shape and then pour into it. That was like one of the things back in the day that defined a company from a maker. Because back in the day, if you didn't have a square bondo mold and people were aware of it, they'd call you out on it if you tried to make like a business to sell boards. Because there were a lot of small details as to why a square mold was better. But in a lot of the concept, it boiled down to people being like, oh, you don't have this. That means you're not doing it right, which wasn't always true. But that's just at the, especially in 2008 and 2009 what it boiled down to a lot because especially on forums people would be like oh you're not using a square bondo mold oh we don't want to touch that and that's kind of how it'd go man it's kind of crazy to think about the whole progression of how the whole scene has shifted because i started fingerboarding in 2010 so i came in kind of at the beginning of the peak of uh, i remember talking to timo kranz he called it the golden era of fingerboarding when everything exploded and just seeing how everything has shifted and the way decks are being made what are your thoughts on that entire shift i know it's a huge thing to think about and maybe the people listening that are new don't really know but what are some things that have shifted and changed to you that that just stand out one of the biggest things that i in my personal experience and my brother by extension because he was around at the time got really lucky to be able to be in the middle of was how booze changed during the era because here's the thing that honestly timo kranz was on the dot with calling it that that was like the golden era I'd say we're like in a silver age still, if not maybe even entering a second golden era, because like this is like the modern good age. We have so much variety in the community. So many new wheel companies, truck companies, deck companies always popping up and they're putting out great products. But back in 2009 into 10 was when Black River worked with Berlinwood and they dropped professional wheels, professional trucks, new Berlinwoods. And Berlinwood back then was the go-to brand. If you used a wooden fingerboard and you didn't have a Berlin wood, people looked at you like you were walking down the street with your pants down. That's how it was back then. That was the standard. So when Berlin wood suddenly went, you know what? We're done selling our old boards. And then went quiet for like a half a year. Then suddenly come back with these really defined concave shape and like high kick boards. Like, yep, this is what we're selling now. They literally established that market. There were boards before that point that had more curvature and shape to them. There were boards that were more definitively shaped. However, they were not the standard yet until Berlinwood was like, you know what, we're going to do that. Because if you ever go back and look at the pictures of a Berlinwood old mold, if you guys need photos, I can even share them with you because I have an extensive collection of both types. Berlinwood old molds were like the closest you could get to a good Bondo shape. Very low, like wavy concave, 
medium low kicks, boxed edges from sanding. Like they were good boards. They were beautiful boards, but they were like a time capsule of like the 2003 or four era up until 2009, I think is when those stopped. And as soon as you go into 2009 to present day with Burn on the Wood, you have those really nice dip curvatures into like the actual like, you know, sidewall of the concave on the edge of the board. There's such a big difference between then when they were doing those boards and their shift into the new stuff. Now, your question you had asked about was more so about like specifically how that dynamic shift was with the golden age in fingerboarding. Now, here's the thing I want to talk about there is that when people started shifting to the more professional things, there was a spark of like a DIY spirit that got carried over into the new era, but it got like reinvented because back then before professional everything kind of became a standard, you had still inverted kingpins. You had the inverted kingpins on the end of the axles that would go into the wheels and you had to use a specific size to make sure it went inside the bearing. You had a lot more popularity in using pivot cups of all different types instead of, you know, what came stock with the truck. There was a lot of other things I could go into, but I'm not going to offhand. However, that was like one of the big things that changed as that shift happened but in my opinion, for the better. Some people feel that it wasn't for the best because, oh, there's a spark that was lost there. I like to think that it wasn't lost, it was reinvented. Because there's a lot of things that happened after that shift that I actually didn't even know you could do as like small soft mods for your fingerboard that sometimes kids will like throw at me every once in a while as like, a, oh, you know you can do this right. And I'm like, oh, I had no clue. But then you turn that roll and you reverse it. And there's a lot of stuff from back before 2009, 2010 that they don't know of because it was something that people would just talk about word of mouth, and the next thing you know, nobody's talking. And if nobody's talking, it just falls into the wayside. But when it came to booze, booze was the most interesting experience to watch because of people writing things and people wanting to sell things. Because when you go to a fingerboard event, almost everybody has the same experience. You go there, somebody says, oh, do you want to buy this? Or you ask, do you have anything for sale? That almost always happens at a fingerboard event, no matter what kind it is and booze was no exception and right when that shift started happening when i was younger i went to a couple of the early boozes like before brts were a thing before the new mold berlin was worth thing any of that and then i went to some right during the era when things were shifting over and it was so cool because you would turn one way and you would be seeing these old boards like you know there was old flat face g10s g11s you had Berlin with Olmolds kicking around, you had Finga, you had Hollywood, Frost, and then you turn your body around the other direction at the park, and you see a Black River Trucks, you see Winkler Wheels of the Bearing Lock, you're seeing the new Berlin Woods, Flatface G12, I think it just hit the scene at that time. It was like the only time where those two paths ever really merged. Because once you started going past 2010, that older stuff, either people would hold on to it or they'd lose it or it just would go into the figurative void. Yeah. You can come across some of that stuff if you're really looking for it. Like, trust me, I have my own share of things. But like 2010 is kind of like where a catalyst happened in fingerboarding. And nowadays, if you find old stuff, you'll be pressed to find something pre-2010. 2010 is kind of like the era where things started to become more popularized and available. So that's the more common product you'll find. Very, very true. And I imagine that you have a very extensive collection of things that you've held on to from the past and, and other things. It would be really awesome if when this episode comes out, if you yeah. can just like post pictures on your Instagram to show so people can look at for reference, you know, this is what we were talking about. Oh, yeah. Can I make a comment on that? Of course, of course. So here's one thing that when this happens and I make those pictures, I don't mind doing, but I want to disclose. This is a side tangent. And some of the kids that may watch this, or not even kids, but people, I'm not going to say everyone's a kid that watches this, of course. There's all sorts of age variety in fingerboarding. But people that may watch this may actually know me from one other very popular video that happened. Kelsey Fingerboards 
made a video back in like 2016 or something at one of the Vu's events. And I am the guy that has this big tan box that is just like a whole row of fingerboards and a second row of fingerboards. And I had to stop posting about that for a while because when I was going to Vu's, sometimes I'd bring that with me. But people started to know that I had that and went to look at it. But then as more people wanted to see it, that was more demand. And then I wasn't able to keep track of everything. Never had anything stolen. I've always been able to deal with good people, thank God. But like as that continued to happen and then I started like letting it exist in social media, people started coming to Lakewood for that. Not for my decks I make, but for what I had. Mm -hmm. I don't mind showing it, of course. I'm more than happy to. But I don't post about that stuff for a very big reason. It's like, if I had to use a metaphor, it's like I had a satchel on my back, and as I collected more things, it got heavier and heavier and heavier. However, now people are also noticing I'm carrying it, and the more attention it's brought to that, the less attention is brought to the other stuff I'm carrying, case in point, like Lakewood, myself as a person. And again, I'm not upset at this, this is nobody's fault, it's not like a, oh, don't, don't objectify me, it's just a... I kind of have been really low-key about what I own because at one point I started to be known for that. And that's not a bad thing, yeah. but I've never wanted to be the person known as the big collection. I like to be known as the maker, which is thankfully why it's so missing from my account. I actually have a, uh, a personal account named Knuckle Roller, and that is where I post more about that stuff. And I'll probably post this. To yeah, but I, I, there's there's good aspects to both because you're one of the people that have kind of preserved this history mm -hmm. that a lot of people have no idea or clue that even exists. And you're right. There's a toss up to it. There's benefits and negatives to both of those, because having conserved that history, having those things, if those weren't held onto and preserved, they would just be lost to the wind. But like you just said, yeah, there is the contrast. And it's not even a bad thing. I would just want to point out that I'm not trying to make a conversation like, oh, don't notice me. It's not like that. It's just that when you have a business, but you also have an extensive like archival collection, they should be able to come together and like be able to tandem off each other. But I haven't figured out what blend needs to happen for that to happen. Something is still doing this as I try to blend the two. And I'll work on it within myself. But you're right. It's nice to have that history, at least, because... When people talk with me one-on-one -on -one and I'm able to go like, hey, you ever see a toxic fingerboard before? And they're like, no, what is that? And I bring out a fingerboard that's like flat concave and like almost straight up wall kicks. Yeah. And they always get a kick out of it. Like, what in the heck is that? And that's one of those things that like not a lot of people know about those nowadays because that brand was only around until like 2009. And then that was it. They were just gone. Yeah, it's like when individuals even now ask me, what's the best beginner fingerboard to get? What, what should I try? What should I start out on? And with the tech decks and the development that they've had in those, and, you know, they're 32 millimeters now, they have actual concave, they have actual bushings. I mean, the wood series that just came out that was readily affordable compared to all the ones that we've had in the past. It's kind of crazy and mind-boggling that they even ask that question or see a tech deck like that as subpar. Like, if you have any idea what was around 11 years ago now, this would be a gem. No, 100%. And actually, I'm not going to ramble too much. But on the note of those professional wooden tech decks, I remember I hunted one down like a madman when those dropped at my local Target because I wanted to see what it was like compared to what I had when I started. And you're right. There are comments that get thrown around like, oh, you know, a stock tech deck nowadays is like, eh, you got to go get insert other brand here. But like even if you go to Walmart and just buy a plastic 32 millimeter tech deck right now, you compare that to an old 26 millimeter tech deck with the, you know, plastic bushings and the subpar grip tape, compare that to the now 32 with actual rubber bushings and better grip tape. Just those two comparisons alone changes the fingerboard, let alone not even talking about the width of it. 
because have you ever used a 26 millimeter board? Like you yourself, have you used a board that narrow? Only... That was a question for you. Did you use a board that was super narrow before? So I started in 2010, right? Being able to get into, into fingerboarding. Yeah. But it wasn't until about 2012 that I got my hands on my first fingerboard and it was 30 millimeters. I know which brand you're talking about, actually. A star fingerboarding board. Yeah, I know what brand you're talking that. about, actually. Really, yeah, it wasn't super mellow or skinny, but it was 30 millimeters, so yeah. Yeah. It's certainly skinny compared to nowadays because 29 people are like, oh, that's the skinniest you get. And it's not obviously, but like it's in that range. I was going to make the comparison. If you like ride a 26 millimeter board, like if you sit down and actually use one of those, the size width on it compared to a 32 tech deck is just night and day. And that's what I was going to end on with the concept of kids being like, oh, you got to get something different. It's like, no, like. You can, of course, and you should if you want to, you know, expand into that. But like the availability of things nowadays is mind blowing compared to, like you said, 11 years ago. 11 years ago is a very, very different market. I mean, heck, yeah, yeah exactly. Even backtracking just to 11 years ago to when you started in 2010, even 30 millimeters was like the standard, if not on the wide side, where we, ju we just saw Dynamic and uh, Caramel drop like 35, 36 millimeter trucks. That's literally like 10 millimeters wider than the start width. So it, it, keeps the get, it keeps getting wider and wider. Oh, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah, it's just crazy to see how everything keeps expanding width-wise. I remember getting when 34s came out and Black River came out with the extra wide trucks. I was like, at what point do we stop? You know, we're almost getting like, what is it, 10 millimeters wider from where we started. I'm like, at what point do we stop? And I guess we we just haven't gotten to that point yet. Like, when do you think it'll finally be like, okay, this is ridiculous? Because one of my favorite fingerboarding videos is Mike's uh, 55 video, where he shreds the heck out of that 55 millimeter fingerboard. And him and, uh, was it Device? Yeah. Just put out another stock of the 55s? Yeah. So it's funny you bring that up. I actually own... Uh, like, is that, is, that a, is that a gimmick or is this... Okay. No, it's a good question. It's a good question. I was actually going to answer and talk about that. One... I think personally, I think around 36 is probably where we're going to start to taper off a bit. Because even just recently, before 36 came out, I have been seeing a lot more people dropping down from 34 back to 32. And if not that, even down to 29 again. Because 34 for certain people, it feels good for a while. But after a while, you realize it's so much weight and width to throw around. That sometimes a little more skinny actually is better for you. Even I'm kind of having that experience. Because that's the width However, of the board talking about that was made for the very first set of trucks. Kind of I own a set of those, actually. And I have them on a, uh, a Lakewood 55 over there, just in the void. I'm not going to get it right now. However, to comment on if it's a gimmick or not, I personally feel it's a gimmick, like 100% I feel it's a gimmick, except for how versatile those actually are when you ride them. Because I got those just for the hilarity factor. I just wanted to own a set. I was like, these are goofy looking. I have the money. Scott's hooking me up. Screw it. I'll buy some. Yeah. I got them in at Booze 30. I got them on that event. Everything is super cool. I set them up. Everybody at Mike's house was using that setup because... Ironically enough, Mike didn't have his 55 with him. He still owns one, of course, but he was in the middle of doing some other stuff and it was elsewhere. So people were using mine. And after that night, I realized that it's very easy to use. And I could see someone, I don't know why they would, but I could see someone using it as a main setup if they really wanted to. But I consider it more of a gimmick than anything. It's a cool gimmick, but I consider it a gimmick. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because I've never used a board that wide or anything that comes close. And I just imagine I'm like, how can you even try and heel flip that thing without hitting your palm? Just trying to get over. I, I don't know. It, but it's crazy. It, it looks cool. It looks funny. It looks wonky. And I understand why they have it. No, it's crazy, too, because actually doing Nolly heels on that board 
is one of the weirdest experiences you could do with a fingerboard because to get that thing on that width to nollie heel you have to basically pull your hand like straight up and then throw it like you really can't just in a full motion throw that like you would like a normal fingerboard you really have to like get it up in the air and then push it so basically in my opinion most tricks you do on it are almost considered late because you really need to be able to get that thing up off the ground first before you start the rotations because if you start it any earlier you can sometimes pop it up high enough to get it out of the way but a lot of times it kind of clacks off the ground because it's 55 millimeters wide so uh, i can i can only imagine maybe one of these days i'll try and hunt one down so i can try it out for you starting lakewood and seeing the whole progression through the scene i mean you started out as a as a fingerboarder but has running this pretty i mean successful company changed your perspective on what fingerboarding is at all so that's actually a really good question and i promise to try and keep it like simple enough to where it's not a big ramble but that's a that's a question to answer it from my personal experience before in my opinion for my own standards good at making fingerboards i looked at fingerboards when i bought them as like some kind of not mystical object but almost like an ununderstood art i looked at it and i'm like man this is so cool looking like i don't understand like how they went about doing this but this is so nice to me because back in the day especially there was stuff like metal bottoms there was synthetic bottoms you had painted wood printed all sorts of different types of fingerboards you had fingerboards with like low concave you had fingerboards with gnarly concave you had all sorts of variety and you still do nowadays that hasn't been lost but back in the day especially before i really really made fingerboards it was always like like walking to an art museum almost it was like wow there's just so many different things and like they had this skill like how did they do that now years later and being established as a maker myself and making a pretty decent fingerboard i would feel i'm not gonna lie i think i have a better appreciation for it now though than i did before because when i look at a fingerboard from a new maker a lot of the time i actually can figure out like how they did something and why they're doing something based on their skill level and the tools available to them but that makes me appreciate the work they put in that much more because no matter if you just went and bought a mold off of ebay or if you own an NFB mold for like a professional business, no matter where you start or where you're at, sitting down and deciding I'm going to make a fingerboard is the same for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody that has that sentence in their mouth, I'm going to make a fingerboard, does it in the same concept, not the same tools, not the same skill level, but the concept's always the same. So when the end product shows the love that someone put into it, when you see the effort the approach they tried with it it's nice to see at least in my experience that's what it comes down to because like i can see that within a deck maker there have been a number of companies now over the years where like either i knew them before they wanted to start making boards or i knew them because they wanted to make boards and i've been able to kind of like watch them progress as they go just to talk about it for one second one of the companies that i really like that uh, i've been able to watch that with is cult it's cult spelled with a v instead of a u that's my friend matt witt that lives like an hour from me here in ohio when I became friends with him, he had just bought a mold, he had a veneer, and he was pressing the veneer with all of the grains going horizontally, and he didn't realize that that was a problem. And the reason why, if you don't know either, is that if you make a board with all horizontal like plies, if you grab it and bend it, it'll just break because that's the way that the grain is going. So I talked with them. It was the first night I had like, gone and hung out with them, and I told them, I'm like, hey, listen, I see your, your passion's there. I see what you're trying to do, but here's a couple of tips. And just that one night alone changed a lot of what he was doing because he didn't have the guidance, but he had the drive that he wanted to do. And just a couple little pushes in the right direction, and he was off to the races. And it's now been about two-something years since we first met and he had been starting. But, like, he makes a pretty mean fingerboard now as well. I've been able to watch him literally progress from the beginning to where he is now and continue to improve and expand. And that's, like, 
a really cool thing. To get back to the question of what you said about like looking at a fingerboard and having a better appreciation for it now, or at least that's how I interpreted it, it's very true. Since I started to where I am now, there's a big difference in how I look at a fingerboard and I break it down based on how it was made. So I like where I sit now, at least with it. I try to make sure that I keep myself in like a very middle of the road stance on things. I try not to pick things apart and I try not to over glorify things. But like I am able to look at a board almost like within five minutes, be like, OK, this was this way because this, that and the other, especially when it comes to uh, real wear. And I want to talk about this for one second because it's just a whole tandem that popped in my head. A lot of people that start making fingerboards nowadays, the first thing they think about when it comes to graphics is real wear. They don't consider paper graphics. They don't consider wood print graphics. They don't consider even painted graphics half the time. They go straight for the ever so glorified real wear. Yeah. And I want to just talk about this because I feel like not enough people bring us up and it's just true. Real wear is not going to save your fingerboard if you're not putting the right type of effort into them. It's so true what you're saying, but it's what I've seen. And I'm not going to call it any names because that's not the point of the show here. But there's so many companies. Um, I'm a deck maker myself. I make boards um, here locally and I have a small page for it, too. But I've seen so many people that make subpar fingerboards and just slap a real wear graphic on it. And then they sell for 30, 40 bucks. And these kids just buy them up for the fact that it's a cool looking graphic and a real wear. But, you know, it's a very subpar board, at least in my opinion, and many other deck maker opinions. And it's, I don't know what it is. Like, it that won't make your board any better, but at least for a short while, I see that it does just help you with that cash grab, so to speak. No, 100%. And the reality is, is that's what it does boil down to. And I hate that reality because a lot of people that do it that way, that jump on a nice, like, looking graphic and then just run with it, they don't realize that you're right. And the truth of the matter is that it's right. It doesn't make the thing work better, it just looks better. But the worst part, in my opinion, about that and i'm not dogging anybody when i say this this is not a individual it's a group issue is that because of that exact problem because of the good sales because of the good look that is why everyone nowadays jumps straight to real wear i literally am in this fingerboard discord group chat it's like the biggest one i believe currently available publicly and there's a couple different like channels on it and one of those is like deck making and there was someone that just was talking about starting to make fingerboards and i like keep tab on that because i like to see that that spark again i still have it myself of course but it's not the same as when i first started but this person was talking and they mentioned this exact thing happened. He was like, I want to do graphics. And someone was like, well, why don't you start with paper? And he straight said, and I quote, oh, nah, if I'm going to bother with graphics at all, I'm doing real wear. I'm going straight and doing the good thing or nothing. And that's just, in my opinion, I'm not mad at them, but I'm mad at that concept because paper graphics are a completely valid way to do fingerboards if you do them right or just spend the time to learn how to do them right. You can do wood print. You can paint on the bottom. You can do transfers, like all sorts of different ways you can do a fingerboard graphic on a fingerboard. But because, like we just talked about, real wear is a lot more accessible nowadays than it used to be, and people can just kind of slap that over whatever and make it look good, that is the standard. And that is in quotations because I don't like that to be yeah. the standard because there are certain ways that if those are done, it's not nearly as good as it could be. And that's all I'll say on there because there's no one in particular, and it's not like I'm saying that's bad. If somebody enjoys doing that as their deck making, they're like, no, I want to do that, I'm not stopping you. I'm just making the observation that maybe learning to clean up the board first before putting a real wear on it would benefit you in the end and benefit everybody, not just the person making them, but the people buying them. So that's that. Most definitely, because if these boards get into hands of an individual like you. Actually, I got a question for you. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I was going to ask you, actually, when it comes to your company name is Nostalgia, correct? Yes. When it comes to you in your local community with your local stuff. 
Have you been asked to do realware? And if so, do you do realware yet? How, what are your thoughts just on that specific thing? There's been talks about it, especially as, uh, as far as graphics go, because a lot of my friends are local artists and they love to pitch me different ideas, which are really, really cool. Only times I've ever done graphics, I've never sold them, but I've only ever done the old school paper graphics just because um, if a lot of people don't know with when it comes to realware is unless you have a, a connect or somebody that you know that can hook you up and give you one offs or you know small packages you have to buy these real wares and big minimum orders that's not really worth it so i haven't really thought about it but all of my decks that i make and i sell i only deal with exotic bottom pliers i know it's going to be kind of hard to tell but i like wood veneer that's what i do because it's honestly the thing that i like the most and i think where that stems from is because i grew up idolizing mike and Flatface, and a lot of the time a lot of the the generations that they put out the g12s the g13s yeah they had graphics associated with them but the main boards were always blanks and i just like blank fingerboards and i like making split pliers and different things so i've thought about it but i've never gotten the bug to be like oh i want to make these real wear graphics because they're so cool and this and that and honestly i'm not a fan of real wear because I want my graphic to stay there as long as possible. I know that's not realistic, but I'm kind of weird. I'm not a fan of them. You know what, though? I actually 100% understand where you're coming from with that because for a couple of years there, I grappled with the concept of if I ever would want real wear for my own self. Because like in concept, as a maker from my personal experience, I was like, I wanted to have it. Even if I don't predominantly use it, I want access to it so I can say I did that. And then when I finally got that access, I was like, cool, great. Actually, I like these a lot. However, the funniest thing with me and Lakewood is that I did paper graphics after Realware. When I was a kid, I never did paper graphics because at the time, I had this whole mind concept about, nah, I hate paper graphics. They're so bad. Not even because they're bad, but just because I thought they were bad. I literally never let myself make them because I was like, nah, that's not good. I don't want that. And then in the middle of COVID, I was like, okay, so I really can't get real res right now. I have my old ones, but I can't get more. I don't have access to all these other tools I usually make boards with. What do I have access to? And I realized I'm like, I could go to Staples and get paper graphics printed. And I like laughed at it. I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do that. And then like I sat down and I was on a phone call with my girlfriend at the time. And she's like, why not? And I stopped and I'm like, Actually, I, I don't know why I wouldn't do that. I just don't want to. She's like, well, why don't you just try it? I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? I'm like, okay, I guess let's just do it now almost like seven years later. Let's finally do paper graphics. But regardless, yeah, I, I decided to expand into doing paper because I was like, you know what? I can mess with that. That could be kind of neat. And I found a way that I was pretty happy with the results on those. So I did mess with that. But I get what you're saying there for sure. I was going to make the tandem comment about the wood bottom boards. Mike for sure popularized that with the flat base G anything. That was a lot of my upbringing as well was like seeing those flat base boards with the blank bottoms and being like, oh, that's nice. Especially when they were, you know, oh, you get a random bottom, but you can try to request it. If you would comment to be like, oh, I want to get purple. If you got that purple, it was always a really nice feeling. But you sometimes would get something else, but it was always a surprise what you were going to get. So I can see the benefits of that. And I do a lot of blanks too. So I'm not just steered away from it, but it depends on the circumstance for me. And a lot of the time I do like to do natural bottoms. Like for instance, I got a couple dyed ones there in the series I was just working on. There's some other exotics over there. So like I do a lot of variety, but in my specific case with having some real wares accessible, especially partial real wares, I can choose to have that nice exotic. I can choose to have that nice bright dyed bottom, but then throw a graphic over top that shows that then through the graphic. And that, in my opinion, is one of the best ways to do that, but it is not required. You can still make a beautiful looking fingerboard by just making the bottom ply look nice, or you can add a stamp or something small like that, but you don't need real wear. A lot of people think you need this thing, 
You don't need it. It can be a nice accent, but it's not required. It is not required. You definitely don't. No, 100%. Like, I won't lie. If I ever got my hands on, on to be able to, to access these graphics and be able to put some of the ideas that I've had for the brand and be able to put them out, I would definitely do it because that's what individuals want. That's what the consumer wants. But I'll focus much more on making a solid deck before I prioritize the graphic. Yeah, I can agree with that 100%. It's a good way to go about it. It is. I think that's the best way. Everybody should try and go about it. Make a solid board first and then how you want to dress it up after the fact is up to you now i don't want to take up any more of your time because we've been chatting here for a while but you have put out so many different beautiful pieces of artwork for your brand and for your company is there any one particular drop or thing that you've done that sticks out to you where you're like you know what i kind of like that one a little bit more than than all the others you see you mentioned earlier about me having a lot of like stuff i've collected over the years you mentioned about how like i just have this expansive archive is the word I can use for it. That's not just for other brands, of course. I actually have a crazy extensive collection of Lakewood stuff because I make them, so it's just a given that I would. However, over the years, I've made a lot of different things. I've done dyed bottoms, exotic bottoms. I've done split ply bottoms. I've done screen printed bottoms that are not real wares. I've done real wares. I've done paper bottoms, metal bottoms, synthetic bottoms. I've done the shell bottoms. I've all sorts of different things I've done over the years. However, over the years, as I fingerboarded, there have been a couple of setups where like I did the setup and I wrote it at the time. And then after I got done with them, I literally would just be like, oh, that was cool. I like those and put them in a box and then don't take the parts off of it. Don't change anything. Just leave it from that era. And in those three, I just showed you this was 2017. I'll talk about this one in a second. This is 2018. This was a actual screen printed bottom that Idol, the owner's name is Ben. He actually made that bottom ply and sent it to me. So I made it into a fingerboard for myself and wrote it for a while. I loved this fingerboard. And then 2019 until like late 2020, I wrote this just blank, just solid maple Lakewood. And all of these had their benefits. They were all very, very nice fingerboard setups. But rewinding backwards to 2017 specifically, this is actually a fingerboard made out of the side cut pieces of other fingerboards. And the way that this was made is something I cannot disclose because I don't like to talk about it too much because I don't want the concept to be taken and ran with. However, this was something that I had done back there in 2017. And then it sat on the shelf for a long while. And then in 2019, one of my previous writers wanted one and I made one again. Every time that I post about it publicly, people have gone nuts over it. I've gotten compliments about this from Mike. I've made one for Mike himself and he like really enjoys that board and keeps it up like on one of his desks somewhere. But like if I had to look at my personal stuff that I've made and be like, this is one that I like above all the rest of them, this style of fingerboard would probably be one of those top ones. Because the only other person that I've seen so far do a board like this was Mike and Jay Linhan, actually. But what they did is that they did it as a flat cruiser style. Because I'm not going to go into the full details about how the curvature is made, but you can see that it's still a fingerboard. Yeah. It's got the full curvature of the concave and the kicks, but that's still the board shape cut from other boards. And it's kind of probably hard over the camera, but you can actually see all the ply combos of those other boards. And some of those other boards, I actually own that fingerboard. So I can take the fingerboard, show the side and then take this fingerboard and hold it up and show the same ply combo so you know it's not just like some kind of split ply trick of the eye thing it's yeah. actually cut from other fingerboards so that whole concept that whole thing right there is probably one of my best top ones because i was just like uh it's such an awful wall concept that i was just like i don't even know at the time how i came up with it but i did and here we are I still need to do an actual proper stock of them, but maybe one day that'll happen. No, that's cool. That's definitely, definitely rad. 
Now, Brandon, the last question I like to finish off these episodes with is for that individual listening to this that, that really looks up to you and looks up to your company and wants to be like Lakewood and producing the stuff that you produce that idolizes and wants <laughs> to take your place maybe one day, 10, 15 years from now. What's the one piece of advice that, that you would give them that you wish you could have given yourself when you first started? Oh, that's a question. You know what you're doing. So it's not an impossible question, though, because I've actually kind of found myself in this position in organic real time at events sometimes. I mean, heck, I kind of found myself there with my friend Matt even because he was just starting and he saw what I had been able to do and I led him in the right direction. However, to answer your question specifically, like what kind of advice would I leave behind on the trail so people can then embark on their own quest down that? Make sure you're enjoying yourself while you do it. One of the biggest things that I have done wrong with Lakewood over the years is that I have become, in some capacities and at certain eras, complacent with the fact of just making fingerboards to make fingerboards. I cannot lie, right now I've got like 30 to 35 fingerboards at the stage of drilled and routered, needing to be sanded and finished, but not done yet. On top of that, I have like 30-something other fingerboards for a cowply collab, realware, that just need the graphics put on. I have these things in the mid-phase, and it's not like I'm lazy. It's not like I'm too busy. It's just I have sometimes found myself at a point where like I need to tell myself, you know what? There's no orders owed right now. No money involved. You're not vibing. Just just stop right now. Because back in like 2018 and 19, I started getting to a point where I felt like I had to work on Lakewood. It didn't feel like I wanted to. I had to. That I was required. And for some companies out there, that's just the day-to-day -day life because it is their main income. And kudos to them because they do it very well. But for me, at least right now in this current stage of my life, it's not my only thing. And it sure as heck does not want to be something that I want to be a requirement for myself. So I've had to come around on the concept of reminding myself, am I doing this because I want to do it? Or am I doing this because I feel like I have to and if I'm not doing it, then I'm wasting time. Now, just as a side note there, as a deck maker, when you're starting, you'll probably, and I'm talking to this person directly, this figurative person, of course, you'll probably find yourself being like, oh, that'll never happen. I love making yeah. fingerboards. Like, that's just not a thing. Like, I, I enjoy every second of it. You will. Even when you're not wanting to do it, you're going to like it. But that's the problem. That is where you need to stop and think, okay, wait, 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 wait. Just because I'm enjoying it, though, am I really enjoying it? Am I, do I want to do this? Or is it something that I love that I feel like I have to do? Because there is a difference there. And if you can't discern that, you'll burn yourself out. I burned myself out bad at the end of like 18. And then 19, I kind of recovered a bit. And then 20, I was actually really thankful in some regards that COVID happened because it really forced me to stop for a while and just kind of sit down and be like, what am I doing with this? And since then, I'm slowly working on like recovering Lakewood to where I want it to be. But I've been very blessed and lucky to have people that support Lakewood and know of it. You know, it's funny. This whole podcast for me is such a radical concept because for me as Lakewood, the person sitting behind the page, I'm just a fingerboarder that makes fingerboards. I know that's not what my image is. Heck, I've been on flat face. People at Vues know me by name before they even meet me. I have an image and I have an established thing. There are people that I've met that have known about me for years and I'm like, how? I, I just exist. I, I Thank you. I'm flattered, but how? And like the fact that this podcast even happened for me is a really cool honor. But that's kind of the flip side is that I just exist in my eyes. I'm just here. But like you just said, this figurative person, there probably is at least a couple of people out there, if not at least one person that probably is like, whoa, Lakewood does everything I could aspire to do. So I want to do that. My last comment I'll say to that person is do it, but do it better than I did, because trust me, you'll be a lot happier.
It's not a bad way, the way I do things, but if you can learn from me and work on not burning yourself out, do that. Because trust me, you'll be a lot happier with yourself in the end. I'm not unhappy with myself, but I wish I had known that before I let myself get to that point. Because it's something I still grapple with here and there. It's actually a lot of the reason why you don't see me super active. Because I'm sorry I'm rambling, but I have to comment on this if I'm going to make a public something or anything. I am not active for two different reasons. One, I just don't always put myself out there. But two, I even find it hard to put myself out there. That's something I want to work on, of course. But that is kind of where that derives from because of the burnout. It's a whole combined issue, but... Thank you for listening to me. <laughs> no, no, it's an absolute pleasure. It's a lot of wisdom and knowledge with what you're spewing. It sounds like rambling to you, but but definitely us listening totally get what you're trying to say. I appreciate that. Brandon, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. These last moments are yours. Let everybody know where to find you, the shop, all the socials, all the tags and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. So in this podcast, I had two different Instagram mentioned. I had my Lakewood FB that everyone basically is aware of, but I also have my knuckle roller and that is my personal one. If people that watch this podcast are looking to see more of my personal collection, you're not going to really find it on Lakewood. You will find it more on Knuckle Roller. So if you're looking for that, that's where you'll find that. When it comes to the boards I sell, those are on liquidfb.bigcartel.com. Those are the two major places I want to talk about here because those are the only places I'm really active would be my Instagram accounts and my website. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Right, awesome. Brandon, again, thank you so much. I cannot thank you enough for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm glad we could do this. Of course. And now until the next one, man, stay safe. Thank you. You too. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Finger Space Podcast. Thanks for skating by and don't forget to nosebonk that subscribe button and dark slide on over to our Discord server. This episode was produced by Fingerspace Co. and hosted by Nostalgia FB. Big thanks to all guests and listeners.